the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yeah, guilty as charged on all counts. <laughs> Welcome to the program. Great to have you with us. It is, of course, a Tuesday, the 29th of January. Can you believe we're almost done with the month? My goodness, remarkable. Uh, Thursday and it's kaput, as the old saying goes, and we're into a brand new month on Friday of February. Yeah, pretty pretty unreal. Feels like I just took the tree down last week. Don't, don't tell anybody, but I actually did, don't know, quite that bad. <laughs> anyway, great to have you with us. We've got a jam-packed program today. We're going to get a report for you from Washington, D.C. Brian Johnston just returning from the um, pro-life March of Life rally there, and we'll get details on that. Brad Dacus will stop by, talk a bit about an interesting case of constitutional rights of a prisoner being violated in Oregon. And we'll talk about uh, that along with all the discussion now that the Republicans have taken over the House, about single-payer health care. Of course, they ran on a platform of that very issue. But just how practical is this really? Sandy Pipes, the president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute, will talk about the real numbers coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. But I want to lead off with a topic that I bet as I share this story, you'll be someone that can say, yeah, I, I feel your pain. Um, like every Californian, every five years, the anniversary of my birthday, along comes a little note a few days ahead of time, a couple of months ahead of time from the Department of Motor Vehicles, not necessarily to wish me happy birthday, but remind me it's time to renew my driver's license. So I did what you've probably done, went online, scheduled an appointment, or at least attempted to do so. They send you notice that your driver's license is coming due months in advance, and it seems like it has to be years in advance to schedule the actual appointment. I found myself back due to a situation where I had to schedule after my driver's license renewed because no matter what date, what time, what planet, what DMV office, there were no appointments available. When I finally got in to the DMV office, I was shocked to pull into the parking lot and look up. And I thought maybe I'd stop by a ticket office and the Beatles had gotten back together again. They were going to do another final concert at Candlestick Park. Be a good trick on multiple levels on that one, eh? The line was out the door and around the building to the point where the people in the main entrance were being met all the way around the loop by the people at the very back of the line from those standing at the front of the line. What? It seems as if, if you've had an experience at the Department of Motor Vehicles lately, that DMV in 2018-2019 is not operating much different than it did in 1960, and maybe, maybe that's the problem. Lawrence McQuillan joins us now. Lawrence is the director of the Center on Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute of Oakland, California. He's also a senior fellow there. And Lawrence, thank you for taking time to be with us today. 
Hey, it's great to be with you. My observation, I'm sure shared by many when you walk into the DMV, and, you know, here we are, we can watch television on our cell phones, and yet the DMV, when you want to apply for a new driver's license, they make you fill out old forms in longhand in writing. Why do they seem to be caught in another century? Yeah, they really are a relic of past times, um, and you describe people's flights rather well uh, in your setup there. Um, The past year, uh, you know, the DMV has never been a pleasant experience for anyone, but it really set new levels of incompetence over the past year as more and more people showed up to get what was um, called a real ID. It's a federally mandated ID card, driver's license, that is supposedly more secure than the past uh, driver's license. So now people are coming in in surges to to get this new required um, federal ID, uh, the real ID, and um, the DMV wasn't prepared for it, even though this law was passed in 2005. So they had 13 years to prepare for this surge of new customers, and they didn't and they didn't increase their, um, you know, manpower in the offices, and they didn't increase the capabilities of their computer systems to prepare for it. Um, They were caught off guard, and as a result, we saw, you know, basically a 50% increase in wait times throughout the state. It was common for people to wait in lines for five to seven hours in some branch offices, and, um, you know, primarily the driver of it is just a total lack of concern for the customers because there is no market discipline, right? I mean, there's no other place you can go to get this service. You're stuck with this dinosaur, uh, this government bureaucracy providing this service, and there's no alternatives out there the way it's currently structured. So, um, so you have to go through the lines, and you have to put up with whatever they tell you to put up with. Um, but there are some rather simple things that could be done to improve it from a customer service point of view. And long term, I think we need to move to a totally different model of private, more private vendors providing these services rather than government bureaucracies. Well, at least you get the sense with a private vendor that there'll be some layers of accountability. I mean, let's face it, if most businesses operated the way the DMV does, they'd be out of business tomorrow. And you're right. Californians are kind of backed into a corner here. I mean, if you don't want to wait in line, well, what's your choice? Drive without a license? Let's talk a bit, Lawrence, about the, the real ID thing. I don't know how many Californians really fully understand the implications of this. Um, part of the new security measures that have gone into place with TSA and the airlines or airports rather across the country requires that you have identification that is essentially how should we say this sort of a sort of a, the 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 stamp of approval by not just the state of California as that you are who you are but at the federal level as well. And without it coming up, what, is it next year? You will not be able to get on an airplane unless you have some other additional support identification? Correct, yeah. You'll either, it's October 1st of 2020, that you'll either need to have the real ID to board an airplane or to get onto a U.S. military base, for example, without a passport. Otherwise, you're going to have to have your passport with you to board a plane or or do other things on on federal property, for example. So, um, and most people don't realize that this is coming up quickly. 
And um, those who have tried to get it obviously have run into these snags at the DMV where the lines are outrageously long. So far, they've issued about 2.5 million of these cards, these real ID cards in California. But upwards of 23 million Californians still have to get this card by October 1st, 2020, or they'll have to have their passport with them um, instead. So. And let's be clear about this for listeners that maybe that are just dialing in saying, oh, wait a minute, now I need, I need to have a passport to get on an airplane. Well, of course, if I'm traveling overseas, even to Canada or Mexico, that's the case. No, we're talking about transportation inside of the continental United States. So if I'm going to get on an airplane at SFO and fly to Los Angeles, if I don't have the real ID, I have to have a passport. Right. Yeah, wow. exactly. Uh, even just to fly within the state of California, you will have to. So, um, so like 2.5 million people have already shown up to get these. But uh, the backstory is that the DMV even botched that first 2.5 million because they were supposed to require two proofs of residency, and instead they only required one. So now the Department of Homeland Security is deciding whether or not to accept these 2.5 million or to have them go back through the line or, or do something else, maybe bring another form of ID when they go to the airport. Well, let me like let me that. do you one better than that. Maybe you can shed some light on this, because my experience was when I heard that, I thought, well, I have a passport, but hell's bells, I don't want to have to take the thing out of the safe every time I want to get on an airplane and, you know, head down to San Diego for the weekend uh, or whatever. And so right. I went to apply for it without Going to, and I will admit, I did not check the requirements for identification first. So I showed up at the DMV with my completed application, and I had two things in hand, Lawrence. I had my, my driver's license and my passport. And I was told my passport was not sufficient identification. Now, wait a minute. I need to get this in order to be able to fly without a passport, and I can fly anywhere in the world with a passport, but I couldn't get the real ID at the DMV with my passport and my driver's license as identification. Now, on what planet does that make sense? Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion about what documents people have to bring, and a lot of people are showing up with what they think is sufficient and are told to they get to the front of the line. You know, they've stood in a line for three to four hours and only to find out that they don't have the right documents. When I was at the DMV in, in April of 2018, I saw so many people get turned away because they didn't have the proper documentation after waiting for two to three to four hours in line. And you can just imagine how upset they were. And how can the, um, the very document that you say I would have to substitute if I don't have the real ID is not sufficient proof that I'm a United States citizen to be able to receive the real ID in the first place? That makes no sense at all. No, it doesn't. But yeah, that's the bizarro bureaucracy that we live in today. And um, and it's only going to get worse. As I mentioned, up to 23 million people are, have yet to show up at the DMVs in California to get this new real ID card. So you can imagine what the, what the, how the system is going to fail when all these people start showing up in the next year, year and a half. Well, I look at the list of what they wanted, and essentially they wanted me to come up with my Social Security card. Well, you know, ever since we learned that your number can be stolen, I haven't carried a Social Security card with me in probably 20 years. 
I have no idea where it is. I have the number memorized. It's probably squirreled away somewhere at home, no doubt. And to have to go and apply for a new Social Security card to go in and have sufficient evidence to prove who I am so that I can get real ID so I don't have to take the passport with me, which is, by the way, not eligible for recognition to apply for the real ID. I'll have to use my passport to travel now instead. Unbelievable. Now, let us also say that the research that Lawrence has done goes a lot deeper into other problems. It's not just inefficiency and incompetency that is problematic at the DMV, but in fact, you might suggest it's even criminal behavior. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Lawrence McQuillan with us today, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute. Boy, they need some entrepreneurial innovation at the DMV. Isn't that the truth? Let's take a time out, get you updated on some traffic. Speaking of the DMV, Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, uh, this year, the recipient of the not-so-coveted <laughs> Golden Fleece Award is the California Department of Motor Vehicles. And oftentimes, and this is sort of the butt of jokes uh, everywhere, if you want to talk about inefficiency at any level, anywhere within government or even uh, uh, the, the private sector, you compare it with the DMV and people immediately know the picture you are painting. Lawrence McQuillan is with us today, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute of Oakland. And Lawrence, one of the things that uh, your, your overview on this topic dives into that I think will set a lot of Californians back on their heels is the notion that this is not just six-hour wait times and inefficiency and methodologies that seem to be more appropriate for 1960 than 2019. You're suggesting that outright criminal activity has been uncovered at the DMV. What's going on? Right, yeah, there's been several FBI-led sting operations involving DMV employees um, and that sold either commercial driver's license to truck schools, for example, which obviously puts the public at great safety to have truck drivers out there in big rigs who haven't actually taken the test and qualified, um, and also sold uh, fake driver's license. Uh, both of these were, well, one of them was in the Salinas area, Central Valley, and then the other one was in Southern California. But there's been numerous examples of uh, DMV employees who are selling uh, driver's license and other ID cards um, to people in the black market. So there's a huge uh, criminal fraud operation going on, too, at the DMV that has been exposed, uh, thankfully, uh, due to uh, FBI undercover sting operations. And... Um, so, I mean, this just points to, again, just the total lack of oversight of employees and accountability within the DMV uh, branches. Another woman, for example, was found, um, according to a state audit, to she was a data processor. She's still working at the DMV, believe it or not, but she napped at her desk for a total of 2,200 hours over the course of three years, and she's still employed at the DMV. So, again, I mean, that just shows you the level of incompetence and lack of accountability that goes on inside the, inside the buildings of the DMV operations. And I think, again, it points to how we need more, you know, private vendors who can be held accountable and risk losing their contracts if they don't provide good customer service and accountability 
to the public. Well, as I said earlier, you know, at any degree within the private sector, this thing would have been blown up many, many years ago for the degrees right. of, of inefficiency uh, that are rampant and a, a complete utter lack of accountability, apparently, from, from your story. I mean, napping at your desk for thousands of hours, and there's no supervisor, there's nobody that, that either called foul or, or blew a whistle. I mean, that's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, co-workers brought it to the attention of the supervisors, and apparently it's, uh, they failed to properly document the sleeping so that they couldn't fire her. That was the story. What, what, uh, in your, what, in your opinion, needs to be done here? We've got a brand-new governor here in California, and I know that there's a lot on his agenda. Uh, does this need to be one of the items on his agenda? And if so, how can this thing be moved out of the last century into something that somewhat resembles a degree of, of actually providing services to the people of California? Well, I think we can learn a lot from other states. For example, North Carolina, they um, privatized all of their state license and registration offices and provide the service through private vendors, private contractors. And again, you know, these people can be audited, they can be prosecuted, and their contracts can be taken from them if they're not providing good customer service. So I think um, to learn from, like, North Carolina and go more the private contractor route would be a really good idea. The other thing would be to allow people to get more DMV services outside of DMV offices. For example, there's many uh, AAA offices that allow you to go in and do basic, you know, driver's license uh, renewals or registration renewals, things like that, um, in the offices. And I think they need to expand the list of providers that offer these types of services so that people have more opportunities to bypass the bottlenecks at the DMV and go elsewhere. Again, Arizona has a very long, varied list of providers. Some of them even provide written driver's tests and road tests. So there's ways of of having authorized third-party partners that you could go to, maybe big box stores, home improvement stores, auto parts dealers, things like that that would have uh, kind of mini DMV in their building like they do at the AAA offices would be another good thing. The other thing would be to allow the filing of as much routine paperwork as possible. Just recently, the DMV allowed for driver's license applications to be filed online. So I think what we need to do is just allow for a lot more just routine paperwork to be at least filed online. It could be processed maybe in, in internally where you'd have to show up maybe to get the final license or something. But at least you could do a lot of just the routine filling out of forms and things at home um, Arizona, for example, they allow driver's tests to be completed at home and submitted online. So they've gone way out on this and, and really gone all out in trying to make this much more convenient for people. Um, and I think another, um, finally, I think another thing would be to integrate more uh, technology into their operations. That it, And there's already apps out there that allow customers um, to get expedited DMV appointments, um, there's companies that continuously monitor the DMV schedule to find openings when people cancel their appointments so that you could have an app, for example, then that, that tells you if an appointment has opened up at a DMV office near you and you could go immediately then and, and get your whatever you need to be done taken care of. Um, that's called YoGov. Um, it's an Oakland-based um, company that offers that service. And there's another service called QLess, 
which is another app-driven company that offers virtual check-ins and lines. So you could check in and you wouldn't have to stay there the whole hour or two hours or whatever. You could go off and do other business and it would alert to you when it's time for you to show up because you're, you know, at near the front of the line. Um, so there's a lot of um, technology that's already out there that could be seamlessly integrated into the DMV operations if they really cared about customer service. The downfall is they don't. They've already demonstrated that. So I think what we need to do is get more private vendors providing these services that already have this technology and and want to provide good customer service and let them take over the DMV services long term as they did in North Carolina and just get the government out of it completely. There's no real reason why the government has to do this and the, the private sector would do it much more cost effectively and efficiently and with customer service in mind, or they would lose the contracts. Well, and you've already cited a number of examples that is demonstrative of that fact. And uh, so at the end of the day, I mean, I think we need to be in contact with our representatives to let them know, hey, this DMV thing has got to be changed from top to bottom. And, you know, as Lawrence points out, I listen, I can take a picture of a check and make a deposit to my bank without ever leaving my desk. But you go into the DMV to renew your driver's license. Now, they're, they're starting to shift, as he pointed out, to more digitization. But in 2018, they hand you a clipboard and say, fill out this form in longhand? Unbelievable. Thanks for the report, Lawrence McQuillan. Lawrence got to run off to another interview. We appreciate the time. Information, by the way, available on the web about his organization at independent.org. That's independent.org. Lawrence McQuillan, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute in Oakland. Real mess. And I just want to underscore, if you kind of tuned in late, and uh, you've heard about the the real ID, and uh, you're not sure what to, I gave up. I, I mean, a, a, after having set an appointment and waited an exorbitant amount of time, um, and you know, a, anywhere else, listen, if if I don't show up to my doctor's appointment on time, guess what? I get charged anyway. Um, I have the same kind of policy. I mean, you you set an appointment for X. I expect you to serve me within a reasonable period of time. You know, 10, 15 minutes late, 20 minutes late max, I can see. But two hours, six hours, six hours waiting to be served for your – so your DMV appointment was, was at 10 o'clock in the morning. And at 4 in the afternoon, they're just getting to you. Unbelievable. But the best part is come fall of 2020, you will not be able to take a commercial airline flight Anywhere in the United States, unless you either have one of two documents, a passport or the California Real ID card. So think about that. Now, the irony is if you choose not to get the Real ID, you'll need a passport. If you choose to get the Real ID, don't go to the DMV with the passport to apply for the Real ID because they won't accept that as proof of identification. It's a great, amazing world, isn't it? Well, if you love the way the DMV operates, oh, then you'll just be thrilled at the thought of the government controlling health care, all health care. That's the platform that many Democrats ran on. 
We're going to have Sally Pipes, the president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute, join us to talk about her latest book, The False Promise of Single-Payer Healthcare. It's easy for you to say, Greg. The False Promise of Single-Payer Healthcare. Coming up next as Lifeline continues. All right, let's uh, zoom out of here, shall we? With the latest on traffic, Michael Bennett, what's up? Well, thank you, Greg. And this report is sponsored by Walgreens. In San Rafael, southbound 101, right at uh, 580 Francisco Boulevard, do we have a signal alert in effect for the connector ramp from southbound 101 to eastbound 580? A four-car crash blocks the left lane of that ramp. Fire crews are on scene. They're taking up a lot of that real estate. They hope to have this cleared by 530. In San Francisco, eastbound 80 on the Skyway, just before 7th Street, a two-car crash there blocks the middle lane. A three-car crash uh, reported in Redwood City, northbound 101. Uh, This is between Whipple and Ralston Avenue in Belmont. Heavy stop and go. Southbound 680, just before Jacklin Road in Milpitas. Watch out, there's a small dog running around over on the shoulder. Looking to save on Medicare Part D? Switching to Walgreens may help you save on your Medicare Part D prescriptions. Walgreens, trusted since 1901. Talk to the pharmacist to learn more. That's traffic on AM 1100 KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, if the story regarding the condition of the California DMV doesn't scare you enough, then this ought to. What if the same fine government body, government organization, were to take over health care in America? You say, Craig, are you kidding? It's six hours at the DMV. How about six hours to see your doctor? Well, it could be worse than that. And while... Many would suggest that the outcome of the midterm elections were in part indicative of people being um, none too happy with health care in America. Uh, The current march that we hear, the beating drum of many newbies in Congress on the Democrat side, um, are suggesting that they'd love to see us move toward a single-payer system. Let's talk a bit about the ups and downs with that. We are joined by the president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute, Sally Pipe. Sally is the author, by the way, of a new book that deals with this very topic called The False Promise of Single-Payer Healthcare, newly released by Encounter Books. And Sally, great to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a very, it's a very important issue, and I think it's going to get become even more um, in the in the public domain as we press towards 2020 and the presidential election. We're, we're seeing uh, just a tremendous amount of <clears throat> uptick on, on single payer since Bernie Sanders um, was running against Hillary for the um, nomination to be the Democratic candidate, and then after um, Trump won, he brought in in 2017 his Medicare for All bill, and he and um, um, Kamala Harris, uh, the senator from California, of course, today came out and said, you know, let's get rid of private health care plans. We need to eliminate all of that, and let's move on. So it's all very, very frightening. And I'm, you may not know, but I'm originally Canadian. I grew up under single-payer Medicare for All and um, worked at the Fraser Institute very hard um, to expose to the Canadian people all of the problems and long waits, ration care, um, high taxes, doctor shortages that happen under um, a system where the government is the only provider of health coverage, which is what Sanders and Harris and Cory Booker and Kristen Gillibrand and Elizabeth Warren on the Senate side are all pushing for. 
You know, the irony is, as you point out, the Canadian system, the system in the U.K. are examples of how problematic so-called single-payer system can be. And I find a bit of sweet irony in a discussion I just had regarding the the complete utter disarray of the California Department of Motor Vehicles and the suggestion by many that we need to take more of the DMV's functions private because clearly government just can't handle this. And I think to myself, wow, if we're upset with the way the DMV handles renewing our driver's license, just imagine what it's going to be like when we have the government in charge of our health care. And, and, and sadly, problems within everything from uh, fraud within Medicare to the, the complete and utter meltdown for quite some time of uh, care within the Veterans Administration, demonstrative of just how unequipped the federal government can be at this. And yet, what, what is this magic, this, this notion that uh, free for all? I mean, you mentioned Bernie Sanders. He certainly ran a good campaign on the idea of a free education for all. And while it might seem to be very appealing, there's no such thing as free, is there? Well, absolutely not. Government doesn't have any money. Government only has the money that it, it gets from the American taxpayers. We pay for all of these programs. And it's, it's, it's very, um, <clears throat> very worrying how this progressive wing of the Democratic Party has moved so far to the left. And there's, it, there is dissension going on between the mainstream Democrats, even Nancy Pelosi is, you know, I think she would like to use Obamacare to up, upgrade that, allow people to buy into Medicare at age 50 to, as a stepping stone. But a lot of the more moderates, Joe Biden, are very worried about going going this full route. But when, as, as you know, when Al, this young gal, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, defeated a 10-term um, a congressman in, in New York, um, she has just been the darling of the mainstream media, pushing and pushing for things like single payer. She and Bernie went on the stump uh, during the elections last fall, and really convinced the the voters um, that that we we need the government to run the healthcare system. And you know, it's interesting you mentioned the DMV, but take a look at the post office. You know, it's only when people got so fed up with the post office and the poor service that the FedEx came into being, UPS, DHL. And people use the post office if something's not important. But when something is important, they use these private companies for the service. And, and I do myself all the time when something's important, and I want to make sure that it gets there and gets there on time. And so, but when you take away any any, pri- any, uh, any private aspect of healthcare, Canada is one of three countries in the world that disallows any private coverage. Canada, Cuba, and North Korea are the only real countries that ban private coverage. The U.K., their National Health Service is 70 years old. Ten percent of Brits have private coverage. But every day in the media, there are horror stories in Britain about about there are 4.1 million Brits on the waiting list trying to get care. Um, there's a shortage of doctors. There's a, hundred, a shortage of 100,000 doctors, nurses, and health practitioners in the U.K. because of low payment rates and a lot of stress. Bernie and Kamala Harris and people in their single-payer plans, they're even more comprehensive than Canada's system because they include pharmaceuticals, dental, and vision care. Canada doesn't include those because they couldn't afford it. And even then, the average wait in Canada from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist is 19.8 weeks, almost five months. Care is rationed, so for older people, it's harder for them to get care. My own mother in Canada died uh, from colon cancer when she couldn't get a colonoscopy because 
she was a senior, and there were too many younger people on the waiting list waiting that had problems that were waiting to get colonoscopies and sigmoidoscopies. So this is this is this is you know what happens when government is in charge. Government budgets are only so large. There's always pressure for other things, and so in Canada you have these long waits. You have ration care. You have a shortage of doctors, and it's not free. What people here don't realize when when people like Bernie Sanders say, "Oh, the Canadian healthcare system is totally free," it's not. The average Canadian family pays thirteen thousand dollars a year in hidden tax to cut for our healthcare system. That, that doesn't work. And 66,000 Canadians cross the border every year and come to the U.S. and pay for um, either a treatment or surgeries where they think the waiting time is too long. So the same thing will happen here, and it's going to be a disaster. And I don't understand why this constant, other than the political appeal of it all, I don't understand, Sally, why this constant drumbeat of it'll be free, it'll be free, it'll be free. I mean, to begin with, even when Bernie Sanders ran and he this whole platform of free education, listen, we all know that there are young people that are coming out of uh, four-year colleges and universities that are burdened with, with unbelievable student debts, and sometimes they're, they're facing fifty, seventy, dollars $100,000 in student loans that they have to pay off. That's horrible. And no young person should ever have to start their working career and their life that way. That said, you say free. Well, wait a minute. I don't know a single professor, and there's a lot of wonderful folks that are in the teaching profession that that do it because they love it and they have a passion for education, but I bet none of them would show up to work tomorrow if we said, we need you to teach these students and you need to do it for free. There's no such thing as free. So why do they keep talking free Healthcare, when this notion uh, is so ridiculous that if we move to a single-payer private, I'm sorry, public system, we're looking at expenses of nearly $32 trillion over the next decade. That doesn't sound very free to me. Well, no, and it's not. And, you know, Bernie's plan, he never, these people never talk about how, the, how much it's going to cost and who's going, how it's going to be paid for. But the Urban Institute, which is not a right-wing um, think tank, costed Bernie's plan out, as you say, at $32 trillion over 10 years. Um, Charles Blayhouse, an economist at the Mercatus Center, also costed Bernie's plan out at $32 trillion over 10 years. Currently in this country, we spend per year $3.2 trillion on health care. But as, as Blayhouse pointed out, even if you had some, some reduction in administrative costs and drug costs, which is highly doubtful, um, because no no government ever runs anything efficiently. It, it still, if you doubled co- all corporate income taxes and all personal income taxes and added in new payroll taxes, you still would not be able to afford um, a, a single-payer system. And, you know, it's interesting, when you look at the new Kaiser poll, um, 56% of people say they that were polled said they support single-payer, 42% po- um, opposed it. But when you say... Well, you know, if healthcare is a right, you support single payer. Seventy-one percent said yes, they support single payer. But when they're asked, you will have to pay higher taxes for this. Support dropped to thirty-seven percent. And the second point is that seventy-seven percent of the people polled said they do realize they'd have to pay more taxes. But fifty-five percent of the people polled said that they would be able to keep their own employer-sponsored coverage. You know, one hundred seventy million Americans have employer-sponsored coverage. And the polling all shows that they like it, they think it's great. But so it's so odd that when you say Medicare for all, single-payer, that payer is the government. There would be no private insurance. All the private insurance companies would be wiped out 
just like they were in Canada when the government took over the health care system. Um, President Obama, remember when he was when he was a senator in Illinois, he was a supporter of single payer. He went around and gave speeches on it. When he became president and was unrolling the Affordable Care Act, he said, well, he didn't want to go to single payer. While I think Obamacare was a stepping stone to it, he said, I'm not going to be pushing for single payer because I know the American people like their employer-sponsored coverage. Last fall, when he's no longer in office, he now again has said he supports single payer. But, um, you, you know, he promised the American people that if they liked their doctor, they could keep their doctor. If they liked their insurance plan, they could keep it. The average family would see their coverage go down by $2,500 a year. None of those things are true, and the American people realized it under under Obamacare, and we only had at the peak of Obamacare's full implementation under under Obama, we had about 12 million people covered on the exchanges. Um, last year, we had about 8 million. But we turned our whole health care system upside down for, a, for um, an Affordable Care Act, which covered like 10, 10 to 12 million people. And there are 330 million people in this country. Premiums were too high. Deductibles were too high. The young people paid the penalty, which fortunately the individual mandate um, ended on January 1st of this year. But, you know, young people would pay $695 in a penalty rather than having to pay $300 a month for a health care plan with 10 essential benefits that they don't, they don't like and they don't need. And, and that's the irony, and that is that, that there, there's, there's no way when we say a single-payer plan that we're going to be able to create a one-size-fits-all scenario here. And the irony is that there's 181 million Americans that are on private insurance. And, and we'll talk with Sally more about this after the break. I, I'm, I'm not inclined to believe that every single one of them is thrilled with their health insurance. But the alternative, as Sally is suggesting, is far, far worse. And, you know, uh, it, it's one thing to say, hey, let's eliminate costs and profits and just take it private yeah, or public. Yeah, little bit more complex than that. 547. Let's get an update on traffic right now. We've got Michael Bennett standing by with the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking about health care in America, and you would think after all the debates leading up to the Affordable Care Act several years ago that this finally would be settled. Well, we know that it not only isn't settled, it continues to deteriorate. Many of the promises that we were given during the time of the debates over the ACA you know, like um, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. You like your health plan, you can keep your health plan. Yeah, we, we all know where that went. Uh, largely, apparently, in the same direction as repeal and replace, which we heard repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And yet, sadly, over the course of two years that Republicans had control of House, Senate, and the executive branch, that never got done Either I have to wonder, as we continue our conversation with Sally Pipes, president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute and author of a new book called The False Promise of Single-Payer Health Care, newly released by Encounter Books. Uh, Sally, is it is it practical to expect even a movement towards single-payer since seemingly we can't get anybody to agree on anything to any substantial degree on health care? Well, you know, it's interesting when you mentioned, you know, um, repeal and replace. I mean, back in 2016, when Mr. Trump was campaigning um, and the Republicans were, you know, running for the Senate and the and the and the House, I mean, they they ran on a on a platform of promising to repeal and replace Obamacare, and I think that really 
you know, because there was so much dissatisfaction that that's why a lot of <clears throat> why the Republicans, you know, took the presidency, the Senate and the House. Unfortunately, following the inauguration in 20, January 2017, they they were never able. They were fighting like cats in a laundry bag. They could never come up with a with a plan that they could, you know, get through. It, they did get a plan through the House, but they could never get it through the Senate. And so in the fall of 2017, um, that kind of went the way you know it just it just went down and mitch mcconnell senator um, uh, um uh, mcconnell said that you know he wasn't going to bring this this up again and 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 of course he he didn't they were worrying about elections and and you know future elections but it, it really was too bad that they weren't able to meet in private come up with a plan and really repeal and replace obamacare that being said i think the president has done a couple of things through executive order that are very uh, promising um, one is the rule for short-term limited duration plans where um, people can, an individual can get a short-term plan for um, 12 months, renewable for up to three years, and these plans are not subject to the 10 essential health benefits under Obamacare. As Alex Azar, Secretary of HHS, said they're not for everybody, but certainly for younger people, um, they would be a very good alternative to not having coverage. The second is the association health plans, which allow sole proprietors and um, small groups, small businesses to get together, um, purchase coverage across state lines. It would be cheaper, and they would have more comprehensive coverage. Plus, then the individual mandate, of course, was um, eliminated in the tax bill, in the tax uh, plan of December 2017, and it just ended uh, this year. But right now, I mean, for all the as you mentioned, all the talk about single payer and all of the, there's going to be a lot, there will be a lot of candidates, I think, in the Democratic presidential uh, nomina- nomination. But um, it, 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 excuse me, it's, it's interesting that nothing can actually happen on this right now because the presidency is controlled by um, Mr. Trump, who's a Republican. The Senate now has 53 Republicans. But there's no question that the, the House members can do a lot of, educational damage by, you know, constantly the, the liberal wing co- constantly talking about why we need single payer. And I just saw that um, uh, the House member, Mr. Yarmouth, he said they're going to begin House um, hearings on Medicare for all. And I've testified in the past on this, but it's but they're really gearing up for this. And one thing that I didn't mention when you talk about Medicare for all, Bernie Sanders at all um, Pramila Jayapal, the House member from Washington State, who heads up the Medicare for All caucus. What what people don't realize is that they're talking about doctors making too much money. So doctors would be paid uh, Medicare rates, which are 40% below what doctors get for treating uh, private patients. So what's going to happen? We've already seen a lot of docs quit medicine, specialists and docs in their 50s quitting medicine because of all the uh, regulations and rules under Obamacare, but if, if the government takes over the health care, there's no private coverage. Doctors who are told they're going to be paid by the government 40% below, I think many doctors, many more doctors and specialists will retire. And even more worrying is, will the best and brightest young people that have traditionally gone into medicine, will they go into medicine when they know they're actually going to be a public servant? I don't. I think it's going to be a huge um, um, out, out, you know, outcry by the best and brightest not going into medicine. 
Well, the other point here, too, and, I, and I've heard this, you're right, I think it's going to be a big educational, uh, quote-unquote, push here over the next two years. I've heard this statement made by a number of the um, junior Democrat House members, um, one of whom was just on um, Fox News here a few moments ago. Uh, the quote, we're the richest nation on the planet. We should be able to do this, close quote. Well, should be able to, yeah, that's one thing. But I, I, I think what you're suggesting, Sally, is if we try it, the, our ability to remain the quote-unquote richest nation on the planet will cease pretty quickly if you're talking about $32 trillion over the next decade. Oh, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting, um, in, in California where we are, um, the new governor, Gavin Newsom, you know, he was backed by the nurses' union who really pushed SB 562, the Senate bill that passed in June 2016. And remember, um, the assembly leader, Mr. Rendon, a Democrat, never brought it to a vote because he didn't know how it was going to be paid for. But um, the Senate Appropriations Committee had costed that out at $400 billion a year, which was more than double the whole California state budget. But Mr. Newsom has to find some way to get around, you know, his promise to the nurses. And he's doing a few stepping stone things, which are terrible, like bringing in a state individual mandate in California, allowing illegal immigrants up to the age of 26 to be eligible for Medi-Cal or Medicaid program, and to increase the um, number of people um, that would be eligible, uh, 250,000 more people would be eligible for subsidies to buy health coverage. But, you know, he has written to President Trump asking if, if, if he would support California doing its own single-payer system, and would we still, would California still be able to get the funds from the Fed? I'm absolutely 100% sure that Mr. Trump would never agree to this. But, but between Newsom and Cuomo in New York, Mayor de Blasio in New York um, City, a number of the uh, Governor Inslee up in Washington, uh, Governor Polis in Colorado, all of these states, in addition to this national movement towards single-payer, are trying to push for single-payer in their states or their cities. And some people across the country say, well, why doesn't California get single-payer, and then we'll see how terrible it is. Well, as you know, any of these government programs, it takes a few years before all of the problems, you know, uh, arise, and the fact that there will be long waiting lists, ration care, higher taxes. And by then, you know, it will have swept, this idea will have swept the country, and it's going to be... A, a, a disaster for for us as Americans. The Canadians, 66,000 Canadians cross the border every year to get coverage, to get surgery and treatments here that they are on a waiting list where they fear it's too long in Canada. Where will we as Americans go um, if, if we're subject to um, a system? And just because you're a great nation once doesn't mean you're going to be a great nation for forever. Well, your your story alone, Sally, of what happened to your mother and, and my my condolences, I think, is 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 very poignant. I am myself a colon cancer survivor, and I hear things like that. If somebody would have arbitrarily looked at me and said, "Ah, old man, back of the line, we got younger people more productive than you, uh, and we'll, we'll get to you when we can," you know, the the likelihood is I either might not be sitting here today, or if I were in a lot worse shape. Fortunately, we caught it on time. Why? Because the system moved, moved, moved. I mean, it was it was thirty days from let's. I think we need to schedule an appointment to. Uh, you're on the operating table, and uh, in fact, even less than thirty days. So, uh, it, it, it's sad because there are so many layers of disconnect here from reality. Uh, you want to go deeper on this? You're going to hear much more about the single payer system over the coming couple of years. I guess we never, we're now in a new time, in a new world where electioneering and running for office never quits, ever. 
The book is called The False Promise of Single-Payer Health Care, just released by Encounter Books. You can get it through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. More information available, too, on the web, pacificresearch.org, pacificresearch.org. Our thanks to Sally Pipes, the president and CEO, and Thomas W. Smith Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Pacific Research Institute of San Francisco. We're here at 6 o'clock. Let's get a look at traffic for you. Coming back, we're going to talk with uh, Brad Dacus. But right now, let's talk with Michael Bennett. has got a look at your traffic here on your uh, Tuesday ride to Hither and Yon. How far is it exactly from Hither and Yon? And do you have to cross a bridge to get one? Well, never mind. Let's get a look at Michael. What's going on? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.